the Egyptians understood that the divine expressed itself in metaphor and likeness. They didn't see uh, likeness as an accident or as a coincidence. They saw likeness as something intentional. That there was something it was gesturing toward that was not like a fixed thing, like this is nuclear waste or this is special, but a kind of like a symbol like the Enneagram that just unfolds in meaning and meaning and meaning and meaning. It has an enormous amount to teach us about inner life and about our human role in a larger cosmic ecosystem. The Big Hormone Enneagram. Hi, I'm John Lukovich, uh, sexual self president with Biowing 458 Trifix. Hi, I'm David Gray, self president sexual 9 with 1974 Trifix. What up, it's Emika, I'm an 8 wing 7, sexual self president with 854 Fixes. Hi, I'm Nancy, I am a self president social 3 wing 4 with a If you like our podcast, guys, make sure you go like and subscribe on the Apple Podcast app. And if you really like us, you should definitely leave us a review. We're going to do Egypt. That's the plan. Yeah. What is the cheapest you could make an Egypt retreat? That's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure. I would guess, you know, around 3,000. Damn. Yeah. I didn't have to pay for it because I was helping, but, um, eight grand and I'm supposed to get paid, I think, but that was almost, that was like 7,500. Egypt is one of those touchstone, really big trips. So if you're, someone is trying right. to do Egypt, you're expecting to pay a pretty good chunk of money, but yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean it's sure. it's ridiculously expensive and and it doesn't need to be so expensive. And I think that it's like four seasons and shit, right? Yeah, like we stayed at the four seasons. Which I had is like five star hotel. Yeah, like <laughs> I, we had. There's no reason to do that. So like, if we were to plan like a zone, and we just got an Airbnb and you led a tour, like how much would the Airbnb cost? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and and how long would the trip? I mean, what do you envision as far as like like if you did the full shittery that you want to show everyone, is it is it ten days or what? It'd be about ten days because the one I just got off on was twenty one days or twenty two days actually. Mm-hmm. And you know this was my third time doing it, so it was really good to see like what I would change and what worked and what didn't. And mm-hmm. for me, you know, you need to do Cairo stuff like Memphis and the pyramids and stuff. That represents what's called Old Kingdom Egypt, the oldest kind of pharaonic time. And then you need to go to Luxor because it's just, it's beautiful. It's insanely abundant. And there's a lot of stuff there that's like very conducive to like real understanding and real teaching and things like this. And if you're in Luxor, you need it to, you know, like my trip would be like, all right, we go to Luxor for a few days and there's a couple of sites. And then you take a bus to a place called Abydos. And then from there, Dindara. And so those are kind of like, two places that are in bus distance of Luxor. And then the final thing I would do is fly back up to Cairo and have a final day where we go meditate in the pyramid. Hmm. So that would be between 10 and 12 days, depending on how it go. And now if we were to do like a zone zone kind of thing, like just us and do some Egyptian shit at the same time. Like I think could probably arrange that for pretty cheap. If like 
a few of us did like our own little trip. I could probably get it pretty cheap and still get access to a lot of amazing things. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I'm into and would be most interesting to us, like, is not common tourist stuff. Right. When y'all came to Chicago, I'm not fucking taking you to tourist places. I'm taking you to, like, <laughs> actual interesting spots that don't cost that much. You know, right. so if you know your way around Egypt, I would imagine that you could do, like, a rogue trip that's catering to normal people who can afford it. Welcome back, everybody, to Big Hormone Enneagram. Uh, I'm your pharaoh, Himbos, the four. <laughs> and I am back from the land of Egypt. Uh, we're going to do an Egypt episode. I know that we've been alluding to my deep obsession for this entire podcast, and I haven't really gotten into it. So uh, I'm excited. I just got back from co-leading a three-week-long trip with Russ Hudson uh, through Egypt, looking at symbols Egypt. But before we get into that, we got some plugs. So please buy my book, Instinctual Drives and the Enneagram. And by David's Trifix book guide uh, on Enneagrammer.com or Ennyasite.com. And what else we got, Emika? Let's see. We got Dark Arts Academy, $19 a month. We, uh, at Enneagrammer.com, I think we recently did a class on, yeah, Zendaya from uh, the, the oh, TV cool. show Euphoria. She, she was an interesting typing. I think before that we did Timothy, how do you say that last name? Uh, Chalamet. Chalamet. Yeah, yeah, we did him. Um, so yeah, 19 bucks a month and just a real quick comment on, I've already mentioned that we surpassed our goal with the money that we were raising for audio equipment. Thank you to everyone who's been sending in money. All of that money is going towards all the improvements drugs. that we need, you know, drugs and all the improvements that we need to make for the pod <laughs> besides the equipment, you know, bighormone.com is coming soon. Um, and we're recording a video podcast at Nancy's wedding in April. So just getting ready for that. Um, so thank you to everyone who's helping us make this podcast the greatest. As if it wasn't already the greatest, but just making it even better. The super greatest. Yes. <laughs> and also as incentive to join Dark Arts Academy, if uh, if you join up soon and, and watch the latest uh, clip, you can see me be absolutely wrong about Zendaya and make a total <laughs> fool of myself. So that would be good to tune into that you can tune in to watch davis decline decline my <laughs> really decline in my old that. age yeah really need to see that <laughs> yeah okay so uh yeah so I've, you know i'm really annoying about egypt and so i've been wanting to not just blast all over the place about it the first question that i would have is why should we give a fuck about egypt yeah like plug it into the enneagram kind of yeah. Thing? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, all right. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's the question. Um, right. So I think first thing I want to say on the outset is, like I said, uh, you know, I, I co-led a trip with Russ and it's my second time leading with him. Mm. Um, I originally was like, our, our friend Denise was going was gonna to lead with him. And she had some kind of, you know, private something or other. She, she couldn't make it. So I filled in last minute. And so before the COVID, Denise and I, we're going to, we're planning on doing a, a cheaper trip than the one that I just led with Russ. The one that I led with Russ is three weeks, go on a, on a boat down the Nile, um, see all kinds of shit. Uh, it's very full and a long trip. Uh, so it'd be very hard for, for us normal folks to take off work and afford all this. And so I uh, wanted to make it available to younger people and things and, you know, people that, yeah, can't take three weeks off of their life. So 
you know, COVID started and I didn't have this podcast and I didn't have my book out. So I was like, you know, a little bit more of a nobody than even, you know, than I am now. And so <laughs> now you're a big somebody. Now I'm a big, huge somebody. So <laughs> I'm put, kind of putting this out there at the onset of the episode just to say like, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about leading my own trips and I have a, a tour company in Egypt that I'm close with. And, uh, you know, for people that are interested, it will be a couple thousand because it's, you know, it's a whole thing, but, uh, be life changing and it'd be really powerful and be more like a retreat rather than a trip, mm. um, in a work retreat. So I'm going to question of why should we give a fuck about Egypt? So in terms of it's just relationship to the Enneagram, I think the Enneagram or early precursor of the Enneagram comes from Egypt. The origins of not only the Enneagram, but also the whole Western spiritual tradition. Nearly everything that we take, be you know, Christian, Jewish, Islamic, uh, it all has its origins in, in, in ancient Egypt, as well as like the, you know, the, the, the philosophy and metaphysics of ancient Greece. Um, the Greeks were very, very generous in attributing their wealth of knowledge and uh, philosophy and sense of architecture and um, and, and even their, their gods to the Egyptians. And a lot of what we understand about Egypt today, the conventional wisdom, is just plain wrong um, based in speculation or, you know, a lot of it is trying to diminish the value of Egypt because, you know, what a thing it would be if our culture recognized that the origins of our civilization come from Africa and not from Europe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, there still is, but there, especially in the early parts of Egyptology, a lot of just racism and projection of egoism. So uh, I got interested in Egypt because I got interested in the Enneagram. Gurdjieff, who's the guy who introduced the Enneagram to the world through, not as a personality system, but as a process description. Gurdjieff, uh, you know, he was looking for a source of real wisdom uh, real understanding in the world. Like he saw a lot of crazy shit growing up along the Silk Road. And he went in search of sources of real wisdom in, in the ancient world, um, or that stemmed from the ancient world. And his travels led him to Egypt. And so from the point of view of just the history of the Enneagram, uh, Egypt plays a big role in the sense of uh, shaping Gurdjieff's understanding and his trajectory and his teachings. But moreover, Egypt is significant in the context of the Enneagram because Egypt, contrary to the popular view, um, was a civilization that viewed itself as a living instrument for um, creating a relationship between mundane earthly events of human life and cosmic order. They represented cosmic order as the, as the goddess Mat. And so, uh, you know, the civilization, the, the daily actions, the calendar, uh, everything they did was ritualized. And it was seen as a, a reflection of a higher ontological order, a higher level of spiritual realities, a higher realm of divine action, sort of reflecting itself in every facet of mundane life. And so, you know, Egypt produced some of the most exquisite art and architecture and things that if we just had the eyes to take a second look at them beyond what we've been told in school about what these things were and what these people represented, if we were able to just take fresh eyes and look at like, what the fuck is the pyramid? What the fuck is all this art about? How did they 
maintain a civilization, very, very consistent civilization, for 3,000 years at least. Um, and what were they doing? What was, what was valuable to them? It has an enormous, enormous amount to teach us about inner life and about our human role in a larger cosmic ecosystem. And for me personally, what Egypt represents, you know, from this point of view of seeing Egypt as a civilization that took inner life deadly seriously, it is a kind of a food for me to, a food for my, you know, in the Gurdjieff work, we call a wish for our, our wish to do the work, to be inspired, to want to make all those efforts to meditate and to stay present in our three centers and to you know, put into practice the wisdom that we learn through understanding our personality type. It is deeply and powerfully evocative, you know, in every dimension, uh, you know, visually, artistically, the architecture that they created. It's this, this, this sense of these are a people that took inner life as the absolute most important thing. And um, they devoted so much time and especially attention and, and cultivated attention into creating these things. You know, it's, it's not just like, oh, they had a really complicated and, and very interesting philosophy that, you know, it's very, you know, abstract that we can speculate on and be inspired by. It's like they left mo physical objects and monuments that speak to and ha require to have built a certain quality of attention. It is incredibly rare for us today, and, it, and a kind of attention that had to be shared among many people to coordinate something like building a pyramid. Mm -hmm. Does all this make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's deeply inspiring, but it also, like, it works on so many levels where, you know, it's, it's like working with the three centers, in a way, going through Egypt, because you, you need to be very present to what you're experiencing in order to really appreciate it. And what I mean by that is, you know, we all hear that uh, ancient Egyptians were death-obsessed, simple farmer people that, like, you know, mm -hmm. were very superstitious and thought that there were beings with, like, hawk heads and crocodile faces and things like this, and that they worshipped an egotistical pharaoh who just left monuments to his own vanity. And when you're actually uh, looking at their art, when you're actually looking at, you're, you know, you're actually inside a pyramid, you're, you're seeing like, this is not just egoism. This is not just something that was born out of superstition, that they were, they had a different way of thinking and understanding things, but it was a highly sophisticated, you could say like science or modality of understanding what affected consciousness like how specific architecture affects consciousness, how certain metaphors and symbols affect consciousness, and how all those things work together to, to kind of push the mind's eye into seeing in the most mundane events like the sun rising and setting, to see a kind of divine operation in it and not take it for granted because you were seeing the, the unfolding of the, of the divine order, if that makes sense. Is there a way to convey, John, just that sense of the experience of the actual resonance of that whole symbolic landscape and just all of the, those modalities as, you know, like you can really sense into 
all what all of these beliefs are, you know, as opposed to just sort of seeming like a bunch of kind of magical, mystical beliefs, but the actual experience of it. Is there a way to relay that as an experience to some degree? Yeah, let me let me see if I can, and you can tell me if I'm hitting it or not. But yeah, the way I'll kind of preface it is to talk a little bit about. Uh, the perspective that like Russ and I are taking when we go to Egypt, because the trip that we just did is based on trips that uh, a, sort of a, an independent Egyptologist and author named John Anthony West started doing like years ago. And John West was a fucking character. I think he was a self-prez sexual six with a five wing who just like mm-hmm. fucking loved to argue and you know, he used to be like fucking 80 years old. He passed away a couple years ago, but, um, you know, he'd be on the Giza plateau and he's got all these people like 20, 30, 40 years younger than him. And he's just like hauling ass and he's swigging, you know, a little, uh, vial of vodka out of, his, <laughs> out of, <laughs> out of his, uh, like his pouches, you know, like all over the Giza plateau and nobody can keep up with him. Yeah, there's um, a really good uh, interview with him on Joe Rogan, by the way, that's worth listening to. Oh, yeah, you, yeah. Where you get a real sense of what kind of character he is. Huge fucking character. And yeah. just, like, such a great person. And I was, my first trip uh, was with John West, and such a lovable figure. But, you know, and I really recommend John's books, uh, Serpent in the Sky. And if you can find it, um, The Traveler's Key to Ancient Egypt. That one especially, it's out of print, but it is so good. Um, but John had these trips because he studied a, the work of a French mathematician named Schwaller de Lubitz, who um, spent like 15 years living in Luxor and studying this temple called the Temple of Luxor, or the Temple of Man. It, it's in the shape of a human body, and it represents sort of the mystical or esoteric dimensions of the human body. Coming from a context where people saw Egypt, Egyptians as just superstitious you know, builders kind of just obsessed with death. This guy used mathematics just and, and measurement to sort of start studying the temple. Like he started, he started because he noticed that there were three different axes in the temple. And he's like, oh, that's very strange. What does this mean? And just from measurement alone, he was getting, you know, pi and phi, these kind of numbers that supposedly the Egyptians shouldn't have known. And over time, he started to recognize that the, the mathematics of the temple and the construction was metaphorical of spiritual principles. And, you know, this is the same thing we find in the Enneagram with the octave. You know, the octave and the the relationship between the law of three and the law of seven, you know, it's if you divide one by seven, you get 0.1428571. The idea is that if you divide the whole, the one, into seven, seven being the number of process, which is an Egyptian, uh, Egyptians recognize seven as the number of process. Uh, it, it, it turns into this sequence. And so there's a, there's a math that is a metaphor, and that's rampant throughout Egypt. And so John West started these trips where he's basically proving a lot of what Schwaller de Lubitz uh, was arguing for. And, uh, you know, this perspective that is trying to understand Egyptians on Egyptians' terms rather than going by the academic bullshit, you know, they call it symbolist Egypt. And it's engaging with the symbolism of the ancient Egyptians on their terms as much as modern people can. Um, and John West is famous because um, he was studying Schwaller de Lubitz. De Lubitz mentioned the Sphinx 
And if you've ever seen the Sphinx, the Sphinx is not built on the Giza Plateau. It is carved out of the bedrock, meaning, yeah, it was just like there was like a lump on the Giza Plateau, and then they just carved around it. And they took those blocks and made a temple in front of it and carved the Sphinx. And in the enclosure of the Sphinx, the walls of the Sphinx enclosure are the same age as the Sphinx because, you know, they quarried these things out at the same time. Uh, and Schwaller noted that the weathering patterns of the Sphinx enclosure, the rock around the Sphinx, showed er- erosion patterns of, hunt- of torrential rain. And that's pretty weird on the Giza Plateau when there's fucking Sahara Desert. And even in the time of the ancient Egyptians, the Sphinx would often get covered up to its neck in sand, you know, even as far back as the, what's called the New Kingdom, like 3,000 years ago. So. Torrential rains, that's pretty weird. And, you know, you can tell what, like, what sand weathering is, and you can tell what other kinds of, like, weathering from the Nile rising. But these are rain uh, patterns. And so John West hired uh, Robert Schock, a Boston University professor and geologist, to come to Giza. And just to look at the erosional patterns and date the Sphinx based not on how it should fit into the chronology, based on just geology. And Schock estimated that the Sphinx must be at least 7,000, you know, from 7,000 BC or older um, instead of the 2,500 BC. So basically, John redated the Sphinx, and this at first sounded really crazy, but now we're finding stuff in, like, Turkey, for example, called Gobekli Tepe, which starts at 9,500 BC. So human civilization is much older. All this is to say that part of understanding ancient Egypt through this lens is looking at how the Egyptians understood that the divine expressed itself in metaphor and similarity and likeness. They didn't see uh, likeness as an accident or as a coincidence. They saw likeness as something intentional. So, for example, um, the primal archetype of ancient Egypt was the movement of the sun through the day and the night. And everything was based on this. So this day and the night is also the sun's journey through the year. The movement of the sun could be seen as a metaphor for the soul, for inner transformation. And there were different levels in which the, 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 the sun's journey was representing different aspects of divine order. So to give you a more specific example, there's a famous story of the god Osiris, who's the god of transformation. When the Nile would flood, and it would sort of revivify the farmland of Egypt. Uh, he represented that greening, that thing, that resurrection of the land, that that things tur- turning into life. Um, Osiris was a king in the first time in this myth, and his uh, he was you know he's got his wife Isis, and uh, you know they're do- all doing pretty good. And his brother, envious brother Set, um, Set is the prototype for Satan. Set gets envious, and he's like, "Hey, Osiris, uh, you're." Fu- you're a popular king, and you know we're all celebrating you. I made you this golden coffin. Come on in. And, and Cyrus is like, cool. So he gets in the coffin, Set closes the door, and you know it's a whole thing, but he chops him up into pieces and scatters his body. Uh, Isis is very upset, understandably, and she goes on a quest to assemble the 14 pieces of Osiris's body, and Osiris's phallus has been eaten by fish, so she has to make a phallus out of magic. And by doing so, it's the immaculate conception of their son Horus. And Horus 
ends up avenging and fighting off Set. And there's this whole Law of Three thing that I'll get to later about Horus, Set, and Isis. That story is the same story that shows up in The Lion King, you know, with Mufasa getting, uh, you know, killed by Scar and being avenged by Simba. Mm-hmm. It's, what, it's what Hamlet is based on. Uh, it's a very primal archetypal story that also the Christ story is based on. And what it means is, it can mean a lot of things, but one of the meanings is Osiris represents the human soul and Set represents the instinctual drives. And when we become, we get into a body, as in we go into the coffin, the essential integrity of our soul gets ripped apart. We become, in, in the term, in the way Gurdjieff would speak of it, as many eyes, many selves. And so Set rips us apart. And Isis, she represents self-remembering. And she's remembering and being present with all these different pieces of Osiris's body, all pieces of the soul, pieces of our inner life. And by her kind of actively receptive presence, brings it back together. And the whole thing about her, you know, creating this phallus of light, that means that the, the spiritual potency is in the hands of this feminine, actively receptive consciousness. When we're self-remembering, we're able to give birth to Horus, which is kind of like a Christ-like divine in the world. And it takes his proper place with Set meaning uh, he doesn't kill Set, but he, like, subdues Set. And there's this powerful image of Horus standing on top of Set with a sword, like, at his neck, and Isis behind them reconciling. And this is a law of three image of hmm. Horus, the active force, spirit, the, the desire to grow, to do our inner work. Set, the instinctual drives of wanting to just, like, fuck and eat and <laughs> be liked and... And then Isis is reconciling the two. And what that means and what the point of my book is really about is like real inner work is not about conquering or killing Set nor about uh, just indulging in Set. It's about putting Set in his right place. And that law of three image is kind of the whole sense and sensibility of what Egypt represented. Wow. This is for a lot of people who are into the Enneagram who are just you know, knowing or aware of just the Enneagram of personality and don't see that the Enneagram symbol itself is like a really rich history of uh, representing inner work in so many ways. And, you know, that symbol has been applied to so many things. And so I guess Egypt is significant because that is the origin of the foundation of what the Enneagram symbol is. Those uh, cosmic laws of three and laws of seven. Exactly. It's, you know, it's like what uh, that, Horus, Set, Isis, Trinity, that law of three, that reconciling Horus and Set, that, in a, that is a metaphorical expression of what it means to do inner work, what it means to know your Enneagram type and to try to be present with your instincts, is that you're learning to and struggling with trying to be your higher self and be your animal self, and that they're not at odds with each other, that they're not at war. They need to be reconciled and find their proper relationship with one another. And one expression of this same image is in Christianity, which is Christ on, uh, on Palm Sunday, which is like seven days before uh, he has the Last Supper. Christ has to ride a donkey into the holy city. And the donkey was an animal of set. It was an animal that represented animality and instinct and the body. And so Christ needs the body to get into the holy city, meaning to be a real human being, to, to fulfill his destiny. And the Christ principle in all of us 
needs that right relationship of Horus and Set, and that is accomplished through presence of Isis. Hmm. So it's kind of like all of the civilization was different images, different metaphors, different poetry, different architecture to convey this. Uh, so that's a lot of focus it, on that one subject. Yeah. I mean, it's what is a human being? It plugs into the Baba Chakra stuff too, because when you're talking about <clears throat> like set and being chopped up, that really fits with the hell realm in the Baba Chakra. And down right. there, right next to it, is the animals realm. And then in the other side is the sort of hungry craving, the hungry ghost, right? And then the Isis image really fits with the one that's straight up at the top, right above hell, which would be, it's kind of the God's uh, realm, and, it's, and it kind of does have a feminine charge, like you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's a bunch more correlations in everything you said. We need to do a session together on that. Definitely. Yeah, and I mean... Part of this Isis, Osiris, Horus story comes from something called the Ennead of Heliopolis. Hmm. Um, Heliopolis was one of the spiritual centers in, in you know, where now the airport is in fucking Cairo, but it used to be, <laughs> it used to be this spiritual center. And, uh, you know, there's different Enneads, meaning arrangements of nine gods, because the Egyptians saw plurality as beginning with three and not two. It two hmm. canceled itself out. and it, when anytime mm. there's two, there's three forces, meaning, you know, there's me and you, and then there's our relationship. Mm. So they saw nine meaning completion. And I think with some caveats and explanations, I think that the Ennead of Heliopolis may have a lot to do with the origins of the Enneagram. And I, my personal take is that if you're familiar with Gurdjieff and you're familiar with the ray of creation, uh, my, something I came upon is I think that the uh, Ennead of Heliopolis is also the ray of creation, but that's like a very uh, esoteric kind of thing, but just for nerds out there. So I don't know, like, did I answer your question, David, uh, in, at all? Well, I'm asking a question that can't be actually answered in a, in a certain sense, because I'm asking you to try to convey sort of your own experience of the resonance of this stuff mm -hmm. in a, mm -hmm. almost like a body level yeah. of just the obviousness that it's real. You know yeah. what I mean? That the whole symbology, the place, the architecture, the energy is actually really lighting up your switchboard. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. yeah so... I mean, the two places that I think speak most that are obviously next to the Great Pyramid, and then there are there's a tomb called the Tomb of Ramses the Sixth, which is just the most stunning artwork, and I think human history. So, like with the pyramid, you know, some some things about the pyramid historically, like we've all been taught that the pyramids were tombs for egotistical kings made by slave labor. And I'm not somebody that like can retain numbers and figures off the top of my head very well, but I would recommend to everybody to watch a documentary that you can find on YouTube. It's a French documentary called Revelation of the Pyramids, and it is just based on the mathematics and the measurements of the pyramid, just, just the math and just trying to understand it without the cosmology, without all the significance. 
you know, when you're near the pyramid, pyramid is obviously a holy place. And in Catholicism, in Islam, uh, you know, it's very common for people to uh, be buried in churches and cathedrals and mosques because they're holy places. There were no bodies found within the pyramids, and there's no mention of how they're made in all of Egypt. Like, there is a lot of bullshit theories out there about how the pyramids were made, and I was actually curious about whether or not, like, granite is a big deal in Egypt, and it comes only from Aswan, which is like 600 kilometers south of Giza. And supposedly, uh, they had enormous amounts of boats taking huge, like, 70-ton blocks of granite all the way from Aswan up to, you know, Memphis, Cairo area. And I Googled to see if anybody had found any um, of these enormous blocks that might have, like, sunk. Like, you'd imagine, because there's cataracts and stuff like this, mm -hmm. that, like, be pretty fucking amazing if no giant granite blocks had sunk to the bottom of the Nile or there's no accidents or anything like that. And the Nile's changed course, and there's, like, silt and stuff like this, but... Uh, none I could find, but what I was amazed to find was like people very, very confidently saying, you know, like, well, how were the pyramids made? And people responding like, oh, well, if you have a bunch of guys and <laughs> a bunch of rope and you have a big ramp and it's like, no, it's so simple. It's so Obviously. amazing how people like, just like part of what I was speaking to before of, of the way that you have to be in your centers to really appreciate Egypt, because when you're with objects like the pyramid. Those kinds of weird fucking theories just don't make any fucking sense. Mm -hmm. Right, right. It just, you know, the pyramid is made of something like 60 million blocks made of, you know, oh, all of them so, weigh tons. So the truth is that they were uh, resonating all three centers in their bodies and levitating the blocks <laughs> and putting them in place. <laughs> no, it was aliens. Part of what's so amazing is like you like we have no idea how they fucking did this. Right, right. Mm -hmm. We have no idea. Like the idea that they were just like supposedly Egyptologists say that the pyramid had to be constructed in twenty years because it had to fit into the reign what? of Khufu. Yeah, there's no fucking way. And all these blocks, right. like it's not just they didn't just stack up limestone blocks on the outside. Like they're all individually fitted, meaning. They're all unique blocks. They're different shapes uh, or sizes. Yeah, different sizes, and they're. Yeah. It's not just like what what fits. They all fit. You know what I mean? They were all designed that way yeah. to be earthquake proof. And the pyramid is the most astonishing th production of human beings that are, you know that anything that human beings have produced. And it to be next go, to it, huh? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> huh? It didn't even occur to me that the pyramids had to withstand like worldwide catastrophes yeah. Like oh, yeah earthquakes and floods and hurricanes like it didn't even occur to me about that that's crazy i guess the the one thing that would be significant is just the magnitude of, of standing in front of something like that because exactly you know like seeing photos of things versus actually being there and like i've seen everyone's seen pyramids but you don't actually realize like this thing's fucking massive when you're standing in front of it and it's like oh shit like how did they fucking get millions of blocks to fit together and stay there for thousands and thousands of years. How is that possible? Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and to be inside it too, because inside it is, it feels like you're in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, it's supposed to be at least mm -hmm. 4,500 years old. I think it's much older. It could but, be tens of thousands of years old, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll get into the whole things redating a little bit more specifically. So like, I think it comes from, I think civilization is older than people say. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Like I said, with that Gobeki Tepe thing, like it's mainstream view that 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 site in Turkey is from 9,500 BC. That's much older than anybody thought. People were doing settlements. Anybody was doing astronomical observation. Right. Anybody was doing farming. Anybody was doing um, monument building. And yet, all those things are there. And that's right after the Younger Dryas Ice Age. So, you know, I think that why does the Sphinx have all that water weathering around it from rain? Uh, probably because it was subjected to the Younger Dryas event, right. meaning it was there. And there's like repairs that the people in the Old Kingdom, Old Kingdom is like the, er- the old era when supposedly the pyramids and the Sphinx were built. But in that time, they were making repairs on the Sphinx. Briefly, can you describe the Younger Dryas? Yeah, so Younger Dryas is like, it's kind of weird. There was like a big ice age, maybe like two. 20,000 years ago and then there was a period of like slow warming for about 10,000 years and then at about 11,000 to 10,500 BC um, there was a big cataclysm and like scientists understood that there was some kind of cataclysm that like changed the environment you know in that era but they didn't know what it was and then they found craters for a comet strike that hit like North America and uh, Greenland and um, basically uh, you know, comets hitting uh, glaciers and ice, ice caps and instantly vaporizing them, mm. causing oh massive flooding. And so, you know, like when you see in like natural history museums, uh, like um, mastodons, you know, corpses or whatever that like, or hear about like, yeah, corp- mastodons that were just like smushed into something and like all the contents <laughs> of their stomach are still you know, able to be found and all that kind of shit. That was like a younger Dryas, like caused massive flooding. And uh, the Finger Lakes in upstate New York are like a result. And the Badlands in like uh, Wyoming, I think. And the like Grand South Canyon. Dakota. Yeah, yeah, I don't know the about- Badlands yeah. are in South Dakota. Yeah, okay, South Dakota, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it changed the climate because they think it was a comet hit from uh there's a, a meteor stream that we hit two times a year called the torrid meteor stream because it comes from looks like it comes from the constellation taurus and something big was in there and it hit us in multiple spots and uh you know basically all that melting ice got into the gulf stream and it it froze it and maybe it didn't, it didn't like freeze all the water but it like stopped the distribution of heat which t- plunged us into a thousand year long ice age they think what happened was another piece of this same comet fragment hit the ocean and somehow dispelled or start that the, the whatever you know was going on or like charged up the Gulf Stream again and, and started a period of, of warm weather. And that era, that Younger Dryas event is what it's called. Younger Dryas is what stripped the Sahara of grassland. Hmm. That's what made it desert. Yep. So it was a huge event, and some people like Graham Hancock, like John Anthony West, speculate that there was a global civilization of some kind that was very different from ours, but that there was some global civilization that was wiped out. And, Hmm. you know, you could call this Atlantis or whatever, but instead of it being like a continent, it was like a global civilization. And there's, you know, places like Easter Island and Machu Picchu and other places in Peru and I'm blanking other places, but there's, there's all these like megalithic sites across the planet that don't seem to make any fucking sense and tales all over the planet of, uh, you know, that there was at one point these like civilizing forces that taught people how to have civilization, how to mm-hmm. 
start their civilization across the world. So that's like what um, the conquistadors took advantage of uh, when they slaughtered the Aztecs is that the Aztecs thought, oh, these are Quetzalcoatl. This is our, our God returning who gave us this and, uh, you know, on their ships and stuff like this. And so they, you know, there's this mythology across the world that there was a giant cataclysm of some kind and that the world restarted and it was that there were some people who understood spiritual and also scientific matters that helped restart things. Does that make mm. sense? Doesn't, doesn't Graham Hancock go as far, I mean, is, isn't he saying that this advanced civilization could be as old as 100,000 or 150,000 years old? Uh, I, like, I don't know what he's currently saying, but I know that like 10,500 BC is like, uh, you know, right before the ice age is probably like when this stuff was going, I, I've heard him, I don't know if it's him or, uh, a researcher he was working with looking at a, basically like a giant under a pyramid that's like been buried over a long period of time in Indonesia and taking core samples. And it looks like it's between 20 and 30,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, right. you know, who knows how far back it could go. But, um, you know, the idea that, that our civilization is a legacy is a pretty old idea. And it's one that is very humbling. And it's, at first people go, oh, that's fucking stupid and crazy. And then you're in a pyramid. And the pyramid was supposedly made at the beginning of Egyptian civilization. And yet it's far more advanced than anything later in Egypt. Right. Ancient Egyptian civilization had a 3,000 year that we know of, 3,000 year. And its best architecture, its its biggest blocks, its most sophisticated, heaviest, you know, there's a place called the Osirian, which is one of my favorite places. It has blocks that are 100 tons, 100 ton blocks. Jesus. um, Of granite, solid granite. I can't even picture how much that is. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. And these old sites, the Sphinx Valley Temple that I mentioned that was like used, the blocks that were used. Um, from quarrying around the Sphinx. Um, you know, some of these are like, you know, 30-ton blocks. Uh, the, these are the, the biggest blocks. The most impressive construction is the oldest. 30 and tons, that's 60,000 pounds. 60,000 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just insane numbers. I mean, not only that, like to build the, build the pyramid, they had to level the Giza Plateau. Had to level it and then set these enormous, like, Kind of like, not like a full-on tractor trailer, but like one of those kind of mid-sized tractor trailer right. trucks, like that kind of background. Those are the blocks that are the that they set at the base of the pyramid, like over the uh, the Giza plateau to even things out for the pyramid to be built on top of. It's reminding me of a conversation on another podcast about them studying the alien crafts in Area Fifty One, the military, and they apparently part of the technology is they actually can control gravity. Um, mm-hmm. And that's from alien, you know, technology. But you can imagine, there, this brings in the aliens. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I mean, you can imagine if you are from a civilization that, you know, understands how to master, you know, laws of physics and things like that in terms of, I don't know, controlling or manipulating there had to be something like that, some kind of control of gravity. I yeah, I mean, it seems like we lost something or we understood right. something. Because, I mean, you get actually in the physical presence of these things. And it's just like, 
the idea that they made any like the, that they used copper chisels to level an entire plateau to build a pyramid on, and then right. they, you know, in the the Great Pyramid, there's a pit which goes I, I can't remember how many meters down into the solid bedrock, but it's in these. Oh my God. It is a uh, meter by meter long shaft that goes down, so you have to really like crawl to get down there, and it is quite deep. And there's this pit that's been hollowed out, and it was not built. It was hollowed out, but it's like somehow they had to build this very precise, completely you have completely precise shaft deep into the bedrock with just copper tools and like somehow seeing down there. And then hollow out this room, not build it, but hollow out an enormous room and then bring all the rubble and stuff back up through this long fucking shaft. Like it just it's stuff that just seems like it defies any kind of normal physical explanation. Like, I don't think it was aliens, of course, but I, I have no idea. Whatever it was, it seems like it would require a kind of extraordinarily cultivated quality of attention. And, you know, go watch that documentary, Revelation of the Pyramids, and the, its, its alignment to true north is more precise than almost anything that we can do today. Even the idea that they hauled some of these, like, 70-ton granite blocks up into where what's called the king's chamber would be, uh, you know, that they'd have to have some kind of dirt ramp. Like, the, the idea just gets more and more absurd as you start thinking it through in a more practical way because that dirt ramp would have to be, like, two miles long. So it's like modern-day architects and scientists can't recreate the pyramid. Yep. No. And, and in that documentary, they show that various attempts by modern people to, like, make a sincere effort to do that shit, and it doesn't work. And, you know, there's more than the three pyramids. There's a bunch of pyramids. And the explanations for them are, like, absurd and hilarious. But, like, like there's one called the Bent Pyramid in an area called Dashore. Oh, by the way, the pyramids were totally fucking smooth on the outside. They had casing stones. So they, like, would shine, in, like, shine, like, hmm. like reflective surfaces. And so... They uh, do now? No, they, they used oh, to. Oh, okay. But, like, the middle pyramid of so-called uh, Khafre... Has at the top, it's got like a little casing stones at the top, like a almost like the snow on top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. That was also oh, that's per- what that is. Perfectly smooth all the way down, but earthquakes okay. and stuff. But there's this bent pyramid, and it's at like a like a I think it's at a 54 degree angle, and then midway through it becomes like a 64 degree angle or something like that, something like this. And the explanation is that the pharaoh that supposedly made these, like you know, the architect, like misunderstood how steep it was and then just corrected midway through. And that this is also the, the like second of three pyramids he made that he couldn't decide which one he wanted to be buried in and then ended up being buried in none of them. You know, it's like bullshit. It's like obviously that this bent pyramid was constructed intentionally uh, to be bent. And so there's a lot of pyramids and, and what, what you see is that the later pyramids are all smaller and they all collapse and they, like a lot of them look like piles of dirt piles of rubble because they lost the ability to do it somehow mm. they lost the ability wow so yeah this civilization started at its peak architecture started at its peak religion started at its peak incomplete language it's it's most sophisticated art it's it's capacity to work with huge uh projects it all it started it's it's its history is a three thousand year decline which doesn't make any sense so Aliens. something just got lost in a big way yeah, exactly. So, I mean, being next to a pyramid, you feel like you're next to a human-made mountain. 
you know, it has such a presence and such a gravity and such a profundity and mystery that it's like you feel a sense of wonder and like what was the motivation for making this thing? Because mm-hmm. like, it took like decades to make. So, I mean, what what in our time has that level of long-term intentionality towards something, like gesturing towards something beyond? Like right. that doesn't really happen anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's like very little evidence that, you know, like, so with the Sphinx, uh, one one piece of evidence is very interesting about the dating of the Sphinx is that uh, there's a it's called a Stella and and there's this inventory Stella that was from like a later era but it was a copy of an earlier record and it's talking about how I think Khafre or Khufu who were supposedly the two pharaohs that made the middle pyramid and the Great Pyramid I think it was Khufu talking about needing to make a temple next to the Sphinx, which is like his son is the one that Egyptologists say built the Sphinx. So the idea is that, that Khafre supposedly built the Sphinx, but his father Khufu is saying, oh, I built a temple next to the Sphinx, meaning that the Sphinx is already there. Mm-hmm. In, in the pyramid, there's like, a, there's like a graffiti in a top chamber uh, or like a chamber above the king's chamber that has like the name of Khufu or something. And it could have just been like they were fixing something up or something. But the evidence of who built them and and why they're attributed to the times they're attributed to is very very faint and and very circumstantial and what's pretty amazing is that the pyramids represent specific stars on the earth the pyramids are named after stars and so like what the pyramids are three pyramids in a row like what stars are three in a row orion Orion, mm-hmm. right. And for them, that, for the Egyptians, it represented Osiris. And so, you know, it's, it's this, era of the, this area of the sky, there's like a triangle shape of the sky where the sun passes through between the equinox and the summer solstice. Mm-hmm. And that was a representation of what they called the duat, which is talked about as the, the underworld, but it's not like after death. Like the so-called Book of the Dead starts with this is a book for people on the earth, meaning it's not for the dead. <laughs> but Egyptologists <laughs> like, this is for dead people. But this realm of transformation, like again, taking the sun as a metaphor for the human soul, passes through this death and rebirth area that's represented by certain stars. And so these stars of this duat are represented on the earth. So like I was saying before, that there's this sense of weaving metaphor and image about the divine action in life everywhere that the pyramids and the landscape of Egypt itself are a representation of these spiritual principles. And so to be a civilization where that mattered so much that you'd put in the time and energy and effort and everything else that goes with to make this extremely mysterious and powerful and beautiful monument like the pyramid is incredible. And it's beyond what we can comprehend. Wow. So where do people sign up to go to Egypt? Yeah, yeah I know. sign uh, me up. <laughs> yeah, if you're interested in going to Egypt, um, I would say, you know, email me through my website. Um, I kind of want to get a gauge of who'd be willing to go. And, you know, this, this would not be a cheap trip. Like, the current trip that is a three-week one um, is very expensive. And it's very luxurious. And we went down a, a, a private boat on the Nile and visited all these temples. <laughs> I would want a much more rough in it, like 
more like an intensive inner work retreat where I would probably start it by having several classes ahead of time, like online, that would be introducing certain practices and introducing certain, um, you know, kind of getting historical information about Egypt so you can appreciate it while you're there without me having to blab about it. But I would have it sort of set up in a very intentional way. And I want to get a gauge of who would be willing and interested to actually come because a lot of people go, oh, that sounds cool. But to commit like, I don't know, between two to $4,000, which I know is expensive as fuck, but, you know, the planet is dying and we're not, you know, we're going to die in the water resource wars. And so we need to have the metaphysical understanding to carry on the civilization. And exactly. it'll, be, it'll begin with this group. Exactly. The, uh, the one thing. This, it's a new world. Yes. The one thing this conversation kind of reminds me of is like um, how there are scientists out there right now who are trying to figure out how to leave markers on the land so that people know that it's like uh, nuclear waste is there because it's going to outlive our civilization, mm. which is fucking depressing. Like, I'm not saying that's what Egypt was doing. Uh, but it's just interesting to watch these scientists be like, okay, well, you know, this symbol isn't going to mean what it means now in 300,000 right. years. How are we going to do this? So it's really interesting that, like, I really wonder what they were meaning to leave. And we're just completely missing it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you're dead on, Nancy, is that it's not about nuclear waste. but it, No, you know. absolutely <laughs> That their civilization understood something with what was real, but I, I I suspect maybe that they understood that their civilization was ending. Like maybe they had the capacity to see the comet thing coming. Maybe. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, again, I can't recommend that documentary enough because it'll blow your mind. Revelation of the pyramids. But I think that they were leaving like like a monument to something that was supposed to, if you had the eyes to see, meaning if you're just a little bit curious. And you just looked at the math. You looked at just what it represents. You just investigated and put some attention on it instead of just absorbing whatever the culture says it's supposed to be. That you could figure out, like Schwaller de Lubitz, from just the math and the metaphor, that there was something it was gesturing toward that was not like a fixed thing, like this is nuclear waste or this is special, but a kind of like a symbol like the Enneagram that just unfolds in meaning and meaning and meaning and meaning. A little bit of a sidetrack, but like one of the central images of Egypt was the primeval mound, meaning the the something coming from the nothing, like kind of like a Big Bang idea. In Christianity, it's kind of like the logos, or in the beginning was the word. Uh, and in some like esoteric Christianity and Neoplatonic um, roots of esoteric Christianity, you know, the the word is almost represented. The logos is represented as a trinity, and I think that that's the pyramid represents that. And so it's this primeval, this mound emerging out of the, the waters of chaos, out of the nothing, out of the void, to give rise to all form and phenomenon. And so you know, the Giza Plateau was arranged as a kind, not just as this potent symbol, but also as a kind of clock. The Sphinx is looking due east, and it is a lion body. There's like a lot, there's sundial. a lot. Sundial. Yeah, there, so, you know, it's very likely that it is an equinoctial marker because it is looking due east. And the last time the sun, we're currently in the age of Pisces, so meaning that the equinox happens when we're in Pisces and it's moving into Aquarius uh, because of this 
26,000 year cycle called precession equinoxes. But the last time that the sun rose against the constellation of Leo on the equinox was 10,500 BC. And so, you know, it's as above, so below that it is rising and it is a, there's a image of Leo on the ground as it is in the sky. And so it's like when heaven and earth were reflections of each other, this is also when the Milky Way was such that it was like a mirror image of the Nile. The Nile represents the Milky Way for the Egyptians. And so, you know, these days they're at a cross, like they're out of sync, but in this, what's called Zeptepi, the first time, 10,500 BC, um, they were mirrors of each other. And it was sort of this idea that heaven and earth were in alignment, that they become out of alignment. And so it's the, the, the role of the human being to develop its consciousness, to be a active weaver of the human material world and the divine world. And this is an idea that goes through Christianity goes through Islam and Sufism, it goes through Gurdjieff, it goes through Neoplatonism. It's this idea that human beings have, through their inner work, have a role to play in the cosmic function. And going back to Leo, Leo, of course, is the lion and isn't the sphinx a, a lion with a human head? Right, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that lion-human head represents, like, the axes of Leo and Aquarius, which are opposite each other. When you go to like museums and see like Sumerian stuff, they've got like a bunch of bull, eagle, right? Combinations. Taurus. It's Scorpio Taurus axis. Yeah, it's pretty cool in, in the sense that the Enneagram itself is a mysterious thing that we're all little bit by bit uncovering. And you can't learn or really uncover the Enneagram without like real intention. And it's like Egypt is this giant representation of inner work in a way that you see the pyramids. It's like, yeah, those are giant, really impressive monuments, but they represent so much. And you have to intentionally go out there and uh, not just be in awe of it, but try to figure out what it means. And people have been doing that for centuries. And so in a way, it, it's kind of like uh, the the last fucking boss in the game of like uh, inner, mm. inner work. And mm -hmm. like, this is what else could... <laughs> What else could represent inner work on the grandest scale more than these giant fucking pyramids that no one understands? That you could spend your whole life uh, trying to uncover like what they understood about inner life. And so, yeah, it's it's one of those things that like I was like, man, one at one point in my life, I'm gonna get in into Egypt, but it seems like the final fucking obstacle. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It does kind of seem like that. And it's interesting that like no matter what culture you come from or like what religion or who you are or where you are in the world, everybody finds them intrigued. Like no mm -hmm. one's like, oh yeah, the pyramids, fuck them. Yeah. And it's cool that, you know, it's it's mysterious and, and it's like it invites you to see what's beyond what it appears to be. And just like the Enneagram symbol itself, like which if, you know, assuming that the Enneagram uh, originates from that, like those cosmic laws have always been there. And it's just like someone uh, discovering that because they were also a seeker of these universal truths. And so all of us who are studying the Enneagram, maybe we're looking at it from personality, but that there's so much more beyond these fucking descriptions and so many cosmic laws that can, um, that we don't understand. And if you're like trying to understand personality like there's so much more to go and then egypt kind of represents like 
this is like the final fucking <laughs> yeah. thing you could ever get. I mean, it it blows your mind and it makes you be like, I don't know anything actually. Yes. It, it speaks to your heart. <laughs> right. You're moved by it. You're like in awe. The architecture is, you know, the, the, the beauty, the art, it is just overpowering. It just moves your heart and, and it, it touches your heart in a way that's like, this is what's really important. Like, I don't know what this meant, but mm-hmm. some people put their entire civilization toward toward something that was more meaningful than, you know, like, what, what do we have? Shopping malls and banks, you know, like, <laughs> right. like this, something yeah, mattered so. deeply. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, there's just the body impression of just like, I'm in a pyramid. Like, I'm feeling in my body the way this architecture, the way these temples, the way things are making me feel. It's like a body-based sense of substance and mm-hmm. um, power. And it's just, you know, you start like trying to slide a credit card between the fucking blocks in certain places and you can't do it because it's so precisely laying like, you know, laser precision. And you're just like, what, you know, that sense of like, what the fuck keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. And like, that's gotta be humbling too, because I think sometimes people might listen to us and, and think that we're arrogant or whatever. I think the more you learn about anything, the, the, the more you realize how little you actually fucking know. And so just the experience I would imagine of, facing something like the pyramids and realizing that there's so much to learn about you know so much that was lost in order to make something like this happen Mm -hmm. that inner work is you know all these series of experiences of being humbled and realizing like you're just like scratching the fucking surface of what you could understand about what it means to be human right exactly (laughs) you know some people know of the gurdjieff movements and you know that uh when you're doing a Gurdjieff movement, you have to be extremely present in all three centers and that your attention is required to do these movements. You know, like you can't phone it in and you have to be really coordinated with other people. And, you know, you can, the, the, the product of the movement is like, you can do the movement, but it's not really like, like doing it is kind of not the point. The point is the effort. But what you see in Egypt was some results physical results in terms of incredible temples and incredible pyramids incredible art that was like the art itself doing the art was a practice it's that that required a certain quality of attention and coordination that we cannot fathom and it turned into a tangible thing it's not Mm -hmm. just it's not just oh that's a great philosophy it turned into tangible things that you can feel the power of and you can feel like like to come to terms and to imagine what kind of efforts were required it's like this is the result you know it's like you're (laughs) you're inside the thing you know yeah Yeah. uh beyond whatever technology it could have required it also no matter how advanced the technology could have been or whatever we lost it required most of all attention Mm -hmm. and it starts to make you go holy fuck like if people were willing to make a collective effort for something like this what the fuck am I giving my attention to? Yeah. So it's, it's just, yeah. I mean, I know I'm saying a lot quickly to like throw a bunch out there because it's a whole huge topic, but it's something I just love so much and I love to take people and show them and, and you know, do my best to help them, you know, open to what, it, what Egypt could represent for them. And I've known so many people that, you know, uh, that have just been 
completely fallen in love with Egypt. I have that friend Denise I mentioned. You know, she's like a, a type two with a three wing, uh, like a, a therapist in Iowa. She went to <laughs> Egypt a couple, like she went to Egypt and had such profound experiences. And people do have spiritual experiences um, that she is now nearly like I, fluent is not quite the right term, but like she really knows and can read hieroglyphics. Wow. And she doesn't just understand, like, it's not just like translating like Spanish to English or something. You ever seen the movie Arrival? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's like a, a, aliens arrive on Earth and this linguist has to figure out their language, but in figuring out their language, it like alters her sense of perception and even time. Mm, yeah. I think hieroglyphs to really understand them are like that because they're these images that are, you could think of hieroglyphs as like acronyms or abbreviations. And so like open them up is to like bring your mind into all these different realms. And so one of the difficulties of talking about Egypt in a succinct way is that everything connects to everything else. Everything's like a seed that turns right. into more stuff. Yeah, exactly. So if we go on this trip uh, with you, you're, one of the added bonuses is you're guaranteeing that we'll be able to levitate 30,000 pound blocks, right? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Correct. Yeah, we will leave it the knowledge of how to create our own pyramids. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, and I like I think that like you know talking about this like like masonry as being a practice, right? Like I think that's where the Freemasons like that was the idea behind the Freemasons and a lot of medieval guilds that like like a lot of guilds started in Egypt actually, like Mm -hmm. metallurgy and stuff. Mm -hmm. So like in alchemy and all this shit. So like. Like, there is something there that throughout centuries people have recognized right. as being something important, but sometimes getting close, sometimes really off the mark. But it's like, uh, whatever the Masons became, I don't know. But what they started as was understanding that the practice of building was building something outer, but it was also building the inner life. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I could do a whole Masons fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I definitely do want to go to Egypt with you. I mean, it completely depends on like my financial status when you go. But yeah, it's... just abandon everything that you've ever wanted to do. <laughs> well, considering I've been working to be in the school for two years, I think I'll pass on that. Thank oh. you. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to bring y'all to Egypt, and you know, I don't know. I, I can show you the good stuff, and then shut the fuck up for the things that you know you need to have the experience of. What an epic zone with that fucking Yeah. Be. Oh, I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh <my> <laughs> I mean, I, I was thinking Y'all like... Y'all would never shut up about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's wild. I mean, Egypt itself just as a, as a modern country is great. And then the addition of just like this fucking insane shit that you can... One of the things is like, like for example, uh, in, you go to like old kingdom tombs. Old kingdom meaning like the, 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 the age of the pyramid builders, supposedly. And you'll see, like, these scenes in, like, tombs of, like, catching birds in a clap net. And you're like, oh, wow, that's kind of boring. Why would it, you put that in a tomb? Like, did they think that the, the soul was going to come back and admire the dumb art, you know? Yeah. But what you see later is uh, in New Kingdom, a thousand years later, God's doing the same actions. And the idea was that these these actions, these mundane events were seen as metaphors of, of 
inner work and in divine operation. And so, you know, you wouldn't normally perceive that unless you're with a, a fucking nerd like myself. You know, there's like all these little kind of things where it's like, oh, why are they just, there's a whole thing where it's like uh, they're punishing in a tomb. They have these images of people who avoided paying tax being punished. And I was like, like, what? That's a fucking weird thing to put in a tomb. And what I started real, and I don't know if this is true or not, but my speculation is that Gurdjieff talked about the need to pay the debt of our existence through inner work, that mm. our purpose in life was to, was to do a certain amount of inner work to generate a certain amount of energy. And that's a whole topic I get into, but that if we don't pay that debt of our existence, if we don't produce enough energy, we don't do enough inner work, that basically our soul gets uh, recycled and, and, and turned into fertilizer, basically. It's like, oh God. I think that these images of the, the punished tax avoiders is to say that people who did not pay the debt of their existence. And so it's like something that can seem kind of mundane and boring and quaint turns into... A metaphor. Yes, uh, something that unlocks the heart. It shifts the heart's sense of what really matters. Yeah, it's crazy that there's a whole civilization that uh, uh, cared about inner work. That in itself is right. like, wow. But yeah, we right. should, we should uh, wrap up. Yeah, if, if people, if, if listeners have questions or something, maybe we could do future stuff. Uh, ask, you know, you can send a submission to our love line, but um, it's a topic I love to talk about. And, uh, you know, I would love if people, you know, showed me if they were interested in, in undertaking one of these trips and so I could start actually putting some things together to, to see what that would look like and if that'd be possible to bring people. And, and also, I think, you know, sort of like with astrology, astrology is such a vast topic that it's, you kind of have to pick a specific angle and we could do an episode on it. I think it'd be cool to just revisit Egypt, but if somebody has a specific question, something that they'd like to cover so it can, you know, be hyper-focused, we can like reoccurrently do, you know, bring back Egypt as a topic. All right. All right. Later. Later. Thanks.